0: Starting a new series called "My Best Friend," and um, I met my best friend in 1975 when I was eight years old. And then I, when I was a teenager, I'd walked away from the Lord. I'm going to share that in some detail, not tonight, but another time. And then um, came back to the Lord strong when I was 21 years old, so like three years ago. And um, <laughs> just see if you're paying attention. Hallelujah. And so, uh, and I've been serving him ever since, and he's been my best friend. Uh, He is Lord, he is King, he is Master of the Universe, but he happens to be my best friend. And I know those that serve him uh, feel the same way. How many remember uh, testimony time at church? Remember testimony time at church? And we've had it here before as well, and and, um, it always appeared that the people that got the most tears or most cheers were the people that had the worst possible Life, And um, many times um, we, we hear testimonies how people are involved in terrible drugs or alcohol and alcohol and prostitution and abortions and all these different things and, uh, that people get involved with um, that are just, you know, uh, hard to deal with. And they find Jesus and they get saved. And my goodness, they should tell their story. Amen. That's a powerful testimony. But what about the guy who's never did those things? He never drank or had alcohol, maybe the lady who never had the abortion or the many affairs or whatever, Um, and have just sort of of known the Lord since they were little little kids and really have never known anything else but the Lord. Uh, Is their testimony any less powerful than the one who was out there in the streets? I say no, because everybody's saved by grace and And I wanted to talk a little bit about that tonight because we're talking about being my best friend and being your best friend. It says here in Romans chapter three, verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I wanted you to catch that last line in particular a lot of the other stuff you have to study out but basically it's saying that there was sin was so grievous that Jesus had to come as the ultimate justifier of sin. And that, you know, your works are not going to ever be good enough to take the place of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. I don't care if you've been serving God for 50 years. Everybody needs to hear this message again and again and again. It's a reminder of what he's done for us. And it makes things a lot more clear to us because it's not something I've got to do to catch up on all the bad I've done for Jesus to love me or to use me. But the fact of the matter is is that he's the ultimate justifier of sin for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So no matter what you've done... No matter what crime, no matter what sin you've committed, Jesus forgives and has the power to justify you and make all things right. One of the most powerful things that I've ever seen in this church happened many years back, and that was during a time where um, a woman in our church had, uh, we loved her, she was a part of our ministry. She was new to our church, uh, but she she was one of those people that just loved everybody, and so she kind of, you just knew who she was. And um, her name was um, Anne Marie. And um, she, we got news that, that uh, she had been killed. We thought, what in the world has happened? I, matter of fact, I, I came to the church, and there was a news reporter that was knocking on our, our front door to come in and said, I don't know if you heard or whatever. I hate to be the one to inform you, but it appears one of your church members have died and by the name of Anne Marie Bouch. And I said, I know who she is. So she came in. And we talked for a minute. But I, I didn't know all the circumstances. So I got a hold of some family members and found out. And what had happened was a boyfriend that she had gotten rid of, uh, was having some psychotic episodes and having some problems, he wanted to get back with her, she didn't want to get back with him, and one morning went over with a gun and ended up killing her and then committing suicide. So, you can imagine how terrible it was for all the family members and that were involved, and it's just a terrible, terrible thing altogether. All so, um, I went, to the, I went to the home. I went to the house of um, the parents, and uh, all the family members were there. And uh, Pastor Ruben and I were together, and we counseled and prayed with them. And, and uh, obviously, they were, they were distraught, but they were strong because they were a really close family. And um, so anyways, it, we heard that the um, the gentleman's family, the one who k- ended up killing Anne-Marie, and, um, and committing suicide, the family was going to be there. And I was a little bit concerned, like, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, these situations can be really, really touchy, and um, we've seen it happen before. So um, we, get to the, we get to the church, and it was right here in, the, in this building, and the and, uh, place is probably two-thirds full. And um, the, the first family member gets up, and he's doing most of the talking for the family, and I going to tell you something, it was, it was the rowdiest, funnest funeral I've ever been a part of my life. They were having a good time, not disrespectfully, but just in honor of their sister and honor of their daughter. And it was just, a, it was a wonderful thing, and they're all Christians and love the Lord. And, and, um, and then all of a sudden, <clears throat> the gentleman was speaking on behalf of the family, and he turns to where... The, the, the man, I wish I could remember his name, who committed the suicide and the act of murder and turns to the family and says, we just want you to know, we love you and we forgive so-and-so and we harbor no hardness in our hearts. Man, you didn't see, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. Everybody's crying. Their family's crying. They're crying. Everybody's crying. I'm crying. The power of God hits the place because what? They, were, they actually turned the cheek. Now, that's the ultimate, in my opinion, the ultimate. And because of the love of Christ that was in them, because of the forgiveness that they had uh, had received from Jesus themselves was, gives them the ability and the power to forgive somebody else. This stuff is real. So when people have petty problems with somebody on social media and I don't like them, and blah, 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 you've not faced that. And If you have faced that, that's a totally different animal altogether and still have the ability to forgive. To me, that speaks of Jesus and testifies of his goodness to the entire world. Somebody say amen to that. And I want you to know that Jesus didn't have a rating system for sin. He didn't rate sin, like 1 through 10, and that's a number number 9 sin. But that's a number 1 sin. He didn't do that. Uh, He didn't say, it would be great if you could come follow me. But because you've committed a certain kind of sin, I'm sorry. You're just going to have to sit back and relax on this one. I can't quite have you on my team. He didn't do that. He simply said, if you're willing, come. If you're willing, come. He didn't rate it. He didn't say, I know this about your life. He just looked at him and said, if you're willing, come. And we see that throughout his tenure here on earth for 33, three, three, three and a half years in ministry. And the people that he chose, think about his disciples alone. This ragtag group of people. Um most of them were unlearned uh, men, and most of them didn't have a lot of skill level. All of them were sinners, and yet Jesus chose them all. Uh, Peter, who would cuss on a, on a drop of a hat, you know, he, is a, he, just, he, he was hot-headed all the time. Um, sons of the, remember the sons of thunder that wanted to call lightning down, or thunder, or, or yeah, lightning to destroy uh, people and to destroy a whole city. That, that was the kind of people's deal. How about Judas? You know, the Bible says that Jesus chose Judas, and he knew who Judas was, but he loved Judas, the Bible says. So we see this is how Jesus interacted with people, but he also interacted with somebody in particular, I want to talk about it for just a minute, by a man named Zacchaeus. Look at Luke chapter 19 and verse number 1. It says this, then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was short stature, of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay in your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today... Salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Let me give you a little history of what a tax collector was in those days. A tax collector, and they all knew Zacchaeus, by the way. So when Zacchaeus climbed that tree, everybody saw him just like Jesus saw him. Oh no, this guy. Because this guy, the tax collector, was considered by the people to be a thief. Somebody that was a known thief that would steal out of the pockets of the people. And he was a Jew that worked for the Roman government. So a lot of Jews didn't like the fact that they worked for Rome in the first place. So they already had that mark against them. But also the fact that he was a tax collector that was collecting money for Caesar or for Rome in particular. And basically, the tax collector... um, uh, had the responsibility of collecting a certain percentage by from every household. So let's just make up a number and say he uh, you know every week he came by and he shook you down for $10 because 10 bucks was what was expected of every household to go back to Caesar, right? But instead, he would charge you $12. A protection fee. Come on, someone say amen if you don't think about the mob. Anyways, so and so every household he went, he put the two dollars in his pocket because Rome didn't care because they already knew he had a pretty tough job. Rome didn't care, so any money he made above the taxes would go in his pocket, which would make the tax collector, the tax man, a very wealthy individual. So he was known to be wealthy, but wealth only because he was a mobster, only because he was a thief and took it out of the common man's pocket. So Zacchaeus was, the Bible said, called him a chief tax collector. So that made him even more of a scourge than most tax collectors. In other words, uh, he would have been infamous. He would have been somebody that would have been Known uh, for his criminal activities, but could get away with it. The Teflon Don, if you will. Somebody that was able to just go out, do what he wanted to do, and nobody's gonna call on, uh, him on it because, after all, he had Caesar in his back pocket. So it would be safe to say that Z- Zacchaeus was considered a reject by the rest of the humanity or the, uh, the, the people that lived in that particular city or that area that knew him. But uh, probably he didn't know it. Or if, if he did, he probably didn't care. And he'd heard about Jesus and thought he'd go check him out. So he, he's... Probably not thinking, hey, I want to go see a man who can save me because he's a man that's got everything he wants. He's got the beautiful house. He's probably got the beautiful wife. He's probably got the beautiful children. He's got all the nice jewelry. He's got the best camels in town. I mean, the guy is set up. So save him from what? He's got everything that he needs. But I want you to know something, that when Jesus comes into your life, it's not about what he can do for you financially, though he wants to bless us financially. It's what he can do for you eternally. What he can do for you forever and forever that can be locked up so jesus sees him in the tree and he says to him i'm coming to your house today and he specifically says it to zacchaeus he knows everybody's looking he knows everybody knows who zacchaeus is and jesus knows who zacchaeus is because everybody knows who he is and so he goes to zacchaeus's house and remember the bible says that zacchaeus was a short man so tonight I'm not talking about the fact that he was uh, short in stature, but maybe I could say something like this. He was short spiritually, or he was short on his abilities, or short in his capacity, or short in his, uh, uh, in, in his, ta- uh, his uh, ability to be able to, uh, to forego or to forgive or to love. So he's trying to compensate in his shortness by climbing up into the tree. And so if we spiritualize that, how many of us try to compensate for the things that we do in our life because we want to be noticed by the king. We want Jesus to see what we're doing. And so many times we end up doing good works or doing things we think is good, like we're going to read the Bible in a year, and then we blow it, and oh my God, I'm a bad person, and we beat ourselves up for a month, and then we go back and do it. Come on. We go back and do it again. That's human nature. But God said to us, we, he, that, that's not how he looks at us. He looks at us through the eyes of Jesus and through the sacrifice of the cross. And I'm going to get to that in just a moment. But Jesus says to him when he sees him in the tree, hurry down, hurry down. So what does that mean to you and I? Hurry down. Hurry down from your good works. Hurry down from religion. And let me tell you something about religion. Religion is what put Jesus on the cross in the first place. It was not the Romans. It was, in fact, the, the, the Sanhedrin council that conspired against him. And yes, the Romans ultimately physically put him on the cross, but only because they stirred Rome up to do it. So it was not them. It was the priests and it was the Sadducees and the Pharisees that didn't like what Jesus was teaching. Because why? He was stirring up the traditional ways of man. And so man's tradition says, you got to do this and this and this to get to God. And by the way, those traditions were more than God actually said to do in his commandments in the Old Testament. It was even more than. So he says, "Today, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come to your house, and today salvation has come to your house." But wait a second! I thought Zacchaeus was a bad guy. He's not the guy that needs the salvation. He's the guy that needs the he's the guy that needs the judgment. He'd be called out for the wrong that he's doing. But Jesus says, "Salvation has come to your house." Then Jesus sums up. His mission to Zacchaeus and to those who want uh, who, who want to judge. And he says this, he says, I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. So my job isn't just for um, those who have never done anything wrong or think they've never done anything wrong or, or say all the right things or memorize 25 scriptures and think they do God a service. Those things are good, but they're not good enough to save you. The only thing that's good enough to save you is what he's teaching them is, you must believe who I am, that I'm the Messiah. And I am the one that's going to to go and sacrifice on your behalf. This was a big deal because it didn't really fit the profile of a Messiah that the people, the Jews were, especially the religious Jews, were looking for. That they thought the Messiah was only coming for for the chosen few and not for for all the masses and certainly not for us Gentiles. Those who looked like they had their act together would be the one they would consider to be the Messiah. Those that did everything that was traditions, all the traditions that were set forth—you know—they go and say, you know, uh, your 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 disciples don't even wash their hands before they eat, and and they made a big deal. That's not even in the scriptures, but it was a tradition, and Jesus totally abolished that, and so. Instead, Jesus said, I've come to to go to the broken. I've come to go to those who have been addicted. I've come to those that are bound, that are hurting, that have been deceived, that are lost, and that are bad news. Those are the people that I'm coming for. So Jesus is not an accuser, but an advocate. He's not a judge, but a justifier. He's not a sentencer, but a savior. Come on, somebody. you got to put your hands together for Jesus Christ it's liberating yes the day will come we will stand before God we will stand the Bible talks about the great white throne judgment, and everybody will stand before God and give an account for their life but before we get to the white throne judgment we first enter the judgment seat of Christ so in other words, we go, we stand before him and he says, I put my seal upon you in 19 whatever it was or 2000 whatever it was and you gave your life to me, my seal's on you. You can now face my father and you go to my father and you say, this is the blood that was applied to me on such and such a day. You, I have been exonerated from all my guilt, all my shame, all my sin, all my crimes by what? The blood of Jesus, not by what I did, but what he's already accomplished. Come on. That day will come. We will stand before God. But today, Jesus offers us mercy. He offers us grace. And I just want to say, that's what this church should be all about. Always offering people mercy and grace. We love to receive grace as Christians, but not necessarily love to give grace away. Come on, y'all. I know a lot of Christians, boy, they, they can get ugly when it comes to other Christians, when they look at them and go, they shouldn't be doing that, and shame on this for that. And I, I'm going to tell you something, we need some mamas, and we need some daddies that can wrap our arms around some of these younger generation and say, you know what, we should be doing these things, and here's the way out. But that's not condemnation, that's conviction. Conviction says, this is wrong, but here's the way out, and I'll help you out. Condemnation just points the finger and says, you're wrong, and that's it, and y'all, y'all deserve help. That's not the way the church should be. That's the reason why the church doesn't grow and grow and grow and grow, is because a lot of times we're doing that. Maybe we don't even think we're doing it, but we are. Look what it says in Matthew 18, 23. It says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one uh, was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold uh, with his wife and children all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of the servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, and he laid his hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe me. So his fellow servants fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will, I will pay you all. And he would not, but he went and threw him into prison until he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw that that had been done, what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that he had done, had been done rather. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he had paid all that was due to him. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The reason why we forgive is because we have been forgiven much. Come on, church. There's another man that was a tax collector that became a disciple of Jesus. And he actually became an author in the New Testament. His name was Matthew. And the account in Matthew 9 9 says this, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it, came, it happened, rather, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus heard that. When he heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. To repentance. This is, there are two categories. This is two categories that Jesus put sinners in. Number one, this is how he divided them. Number one, the religious. He put them in a category of being a sinner. The religious that think their piety, their good works, their religion is going to save them. And the other category was the sinner who just knew they were sinning but didn't know how to stop. Listen, church, I would much rather deal with a sinner that gets that they're doing wrong than a religious person who wants to point out how wrong the sinner is doing. I, I just—I I have little to no tolerance at all for someone's religion. That all, religion will always point their finger about how bad somebody is doing. It was religion that put Jesus on the cross, and religion always tries to crucify Jesus. It was religion, uh, religious people, that Jesus actually was the one who rebuked. He rebuked the Pharisees more than any other man. Uh, and this this whole idea of us four and no more theology—it's broken and wrong. We've got to go beyond the four walls of our church. we got to live, love our city back to life again. Somebody say amen. We don't curse Milwaukee. We speak good of Milwaukee. We know there's wrong. We know there's violence. We know there's uh, racism. We know that there's terrible things that are happening right now in this community tonight. But we also know that our God is bigger than that. Jesus is still Lord over it all. And we got to go out there and love people. Amen. We've got to be willing to walk with moral courage in a dark world and invade it with the light of the gospel because that's where people live who need Jesus the very most. And what happens is religion isolates the Christian from the sinner No, you can't hang out with them and go shoot pool with them all the time and and go to the bars with them and all that kind of stuff. That's not what I'm suggesting, but I'm just saying that you got to be light where there's darkness. You may not be able to do everything with them because there's sin involved, but you have to let them know that you're still there, you're there for them, and you'll be there for them. Come on, somebody. And we've got to look at church the same way. And if we think we're going to get them saved with a pious, pompous attitude of, well, you got to do this and do that before Jesus will actually receive you, then we'll never win this city to Jesus. We need to, we need, the bottom line is, we need to still preach the truth. The truth still stings. The truth still hurts. And and I'm not suggesting that we don't tell uh, people who are in sin that they're in sin, but we don't do it with piety. We don't do it with a long finger. We do it in and with love. Because let me just tell you something, what the world needs more than anything else right now, right now above anything else, is just to be loved. When I love you doesn't mean I accept your behavior. It just means I love you. I, I love you. Just like your children. When they do wrong, you don't accept their behavior, but they walk away knowing mom and dad or mom or dad loves me, right? Right? So that's what we got to look at, and so it's the same way with with human beings out here in Milwaukee. People just walk in the street. We can't catch the uh, clean the fish before we catch the fish, and they won't even listen to us till we let them know how much we care. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter thirteen verse one. It says, "Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging or a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith, so that I can remove mountains, but have not." love love I am nothing and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor and though I give my body to be burned but if I have not love it profits me nothing so what's the number one thing we gotta have we gotta have love above all of the other things that come along with christianity first john chapter 4 beloved let us love one another for love is of god and everyone who loves is born of god and knows god and he who does not does not love does not know God for God is love in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him in this is love not that we have that love God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins beloved if God so loved us We also ought to love one another. And if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. How can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Dude, that's heavy duty. That's what Christians need to hear every single day of their life. If you're going to love God, you've got to love your brother because it's one and the same. And we come in all shapes and sizes. We come in both genders. Come on, someone say amen. And we come with all kinds of different colors. Hallelujah. And we got to love each other. we got to get along with each other, understand our differences, and celebrate them all at the same time. But we've got to learn to say, I put all that aside. You're still my brother. You're still my sister. When I was a teenager, I was, I was totally back from God, and, and, and at, the point, at, the, at that time, I wasn't coming back. And, and so I was in the world, and I was in a lot of trouble and doing different things and and just things I'm not, I'm not proud of and um and we were going to church cuz I was raised in the church since so I was 7 years old and um and I didn't want nothing to do with it and so because of my actions and some of the things that t- take place in my life that I'm not proud of um you know I I wasn't really allowed to to mix with the other kids because you know I was a bad influence on them and so when I walked down the hallways I would see uh, the other parents whisper to their kids and that they all go a different way and you'd see all that kind of stuff and and uh, I can't say it hurt my feelings I almost understood where they were coming from to be honest with you but um, it put a hardness in my heart towards those people because I think who are you I know your kids better than you think you know them I know where they've been what they've done you think I'm influencing them you're crazy sometimes they're the influencer and not me sometimes they're the instigator and not me and so Uh, I I remember all of that. And I remember uh, the leadership of the church uh, really not liking me very much and and having nothing to do with me. And if they did, it was a scream and yell and to point and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not telling you that because I have an ax to grind. It just happened. And it happened because of my actions. But I'm going to tell you something. Their actions were no better than mine. Nobody put their arm around me. Nobody said, you know what, kid, you know, I can see you got this quality, that quality. I shouldn't say nobody. There was a couple people, and one happened to be a woman, and I just talked to her recently, but they they weren't in leadership positions. They were just a part of the church. But the truth of the matter is, they weren't doing that because they didn't see that in me. They could never see that in me. And I don't look back and, and disparage it at all, but I remember thinking, I don't want anything to do with these people, and I want nothing to do with this church. Can you tell me that's God? That's not the love of God. Come on, somebody. We're not called to push people away. Now, if they choose their sin and they choose not to receive that love, that's on them. But our job is to always embrace until they make a decision that they don't want it in their life. Our job is to go to the nth degree, if I can say it that way, with our love, our grace, and our mercy to show them we actually do care. And that kind of stuff will turn people's lives around. Amen, somebody. First Peter 4, 8, and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. What covers sins? Love. Not pushing them out. Not saying the Bible says this and you're going to hell. None of that stuff, but actual love. And also it doesn't say accept their behavior. Well, I got to accept their behavior. No, you don't. But you can, you can actually say, I can still love them though. And I'm going to love them anyways, uh, because why? It covers sin. Uh, Noah, the Bible says, after he made the ark and, and the waters have subsided and, and they were out, out of the ark and, and he planted a vineyard. And, and uh, the Bible says he took of, his, of the grape and he made wine and he became merry and he drank the wine. And the Bible says, I don't know if it was a party of one or whatever, but he was in there and he was drunk and he was naked. And one of his sons came and saw his nakedness. And know what he did? The first thing he did is went and told on the father. You're not going to believe this. Our father is naked. I'm so ashamed of him. He's drunk. He's a skunk. He's in that tent. I can't believe this. And the other two brothers did what? They went to the tent but did not go into the tent face first but took a covering. And they walked in backwards so they would not see the shame of their father's nakedness. And they did what? And they covered up his nakedness. The Bible says that when Noah woke up from his sleep, he remembered what his son had done and what his other two sons had done. And he called them together and to the one son... He rebuked him and a curse came upon him and his lineage from that day forward Ham, and the rest of the two sons. He blessed them because you covered my shame. In other words, love doesn't go blab to everybody what someone's done wrong, but instead covers and says, I love you. We're going to get through this together. I'm certainly not going to judge you. I'm not going to cast my eyes on your problem that way. I'm going to walk in backwards gingerly just to let you know everything's going to be all right. And when you're in your right mind, we'll talk about it. Come on, somebody. That, that's how we're supposed to help one another. And church, Jesus could have shown us this kind of love. He couldn't have done it any better than in John chapter 8. I'm going to close with this. In verse number 2, it says, Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. What do you say, Jesus? This, This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who was without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted of their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I don't see anywhere where Jesus excuses the sin. But he does forgive the sin and tells her, don't do it again. Church, that's a picture of how Christianity should operate. In our lives with one another and with those that don't know Jesus at all. This is the crux, in my opinion, of Christianity. This is the beginning point of reaching a lost and hopeless city. We're not here to curse the darkness, but to light a candle, that our city may know the power of His love to forgive, the power of His love to heal, to deliver, to transform, and to give it a future and a hope. That's what we're here for and to do. And they won't know until they can know how good of a friend Jesus has been to us he's my best friend. And when you have a best friend, you want to tell everybody about that person. You can't help him. They just help it they're just in your heart. And and he needs to be your best friend. It's not enough for him just to be Lord and Savior cuz he is. It's not enough just to bow your knee and you should all that. But is he your friend? Can you talk to him like a friend? Or do you always see him as somebody pointing a finger at you? Do you always see Jesus as always angry and upset and scolding you uh, and, and and putting you in time out or giving you 30 lashes, spiritually speaking, are always, well, I'm probably going through this in my life because, you know, he, I did mess up and I guess I just deserve that. Is that how you see him? Because that's just not the New Testament of who Jesus is. He still offers mercy. He still offers grace. He always offers hope no matter what. All we have to do is have faith in that. Wait a second. This isn't happening because I'm bad. Yeah, I'm bad. I messed up. But I ask him to forgive me. And if I ask him to forgive me, I take great confidence knowing he has forgiven me. And he cleanses me of all unrighteousness. You see, I'm not justifying my sin. I'm dealing with it. But the way I deal with it is I got to receive forgiveness from him. And he always wants to offer forgiveness to me. Amen? Did y'all enjoy that tonight? Amen.